You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this morning is from John chapter 17. Herein we read the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ to his Father for the sake of his disciples and church before he is going to be betrayed, handed over to be killed. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they will may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and was kept, and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Our text this morning is Psalm 123. 
a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is this dangerous little lie that goes around in Christian circles. It's a dangerous little lie that fits better in Aesop's fables or Mother Goose's nursery rhymes than it does in Christian theology, and yet it pops up all the time. It says that if you are a good little boy or a good little girl, if you are a good little Christian, you won't get into trouble. If you are a good little Christian, you will avoid trouble in your life. If you do the right things, the thinking goes, God will make sure that nothing painful or difficult will ever happen to you. We read from John chapter 17. There the Lord Jesus prayed to the Father in the presence of his disciples before his death. And he said, he acknowledged that they would face trouble in this world. In fact, he told them, or he, he prayed to the Father, and he made clear to them that when they acted in righteousness and followed after him, then they would face trouble and persecution. It would be precisely in doing what was right, in following their Lord Jesus Christ, that trouble would find them. In our psalm this morning, we see that the psalmist and and these psalms, of course, they give expression to the community of believers, to, to God's people, to God's covenant people altogether. And so we see that God's people have faced trouble. They've endured contempt and ridicule. And in the face of that troubling situation, they call out for mercy. And so how are we to act? How are we to live? And how are we to live? How is a Christian to deal with the adversity and trouble that comes upon them in this world? Are they to say, it is because I was not the good little Christian that I was supposed to be? How do we respond when trouble and persecution strike us? Our theme this morning is that the pilgrim seeks the mercy of God. The pilgrim seeks the mercy of God. In this, we see the sovereignty of God's position, and we see the humility, the lowness of our position. As we call out to the Lord, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy And so we come this morning to the fourth song of ascents, to Psalm 
123. A psalm along with those other songs that the pilgrims would sing together as they made their way up to Jerusalem for the yearly feasts, the three times yearly festivals. And we see that uh, the psalmist is no longer looking to the hills, as in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? But we've moved along, and the psalmist now in Psalm 123 says, I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. No longer to the hills, now directly to him whose throne is in heaven. Some would say that this shows a a certain progression, a certain maturing on the part of the pilgrim. That is possible, but it seems more likely that it has to do with the nature of the threat. In Psalm 121, the nature of the threat was this general threat. There's hills. I don't see the danger, but I know in those hills is some danger. Psalm 123, the situation is different. The pilgrim has come through the danger. They have already endured the ridicule and the contempt. They have already faced the trouble. They are right even in the middle of it. They don't need to look around for the danger. The danger has already found them. The danger has found them. But that's okay. Because... They lift up their eyes and they look to him whose throne is in heaven. And who is this king whose throne is in the highest place? The Lord. The Lord. He is the king of glory. Yes, God, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who rules and he rules from the highest place imaginable. His throne in heaven. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. And so from the very outset, the psalmist acknowledges this fact that God is enthroned in heaven. Before describing the trouble even that he faces, he he faces the Lord in faith. He looks to Him. This, brothers and sisters, is the posture of faith. This is the posture of faith. To look first to God. He is the center of our lives. He is the sole source of our security. Yes, it's like a home alarm. It's like a home alarm. Our faith in the Lord. You need to have that alarm installed before you get to the trouble. Before the trouble comes. It needs to be functioning before the thieves come. To activate it once they've come and burglarized your house is to initiate it too too late. So it is with faith. We look first to the Lord. He is the sole source of our security. In Him we find our life and our strength and our comfort. And then, brothers and sisters, let the troubles come. We look to God. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And the manner with which the psalmist looks to the Lord is is striking. This image here is a very memorable one. Psalm 123 is memorable because of that verse 2. You do not come before the king of the universe in pride or pretension, 
You come before him in humility. You humble yourselves, yourself before him. The psalmist doesn't approach the Lord like his most trusted advisor. Here's what's going on. Here's what you need to do about the situation or his golfing buddy. He comes before him like a slave, like a slave before his master, like a maid before her mistress. And so that comparison, that memorable comparison is made as the eyes of a slave look to the hand of their master. As the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you, the Lord our God. So it's a memorable comparison, but yet as we've seen in these songs of ascent, sometimes in the tightness of the language, it's difficult to know precisely what the psalmist is referring to. So what is it about how a slave looks to the hand of their master that the psalmist is speaking about here? And there is some debate. Some say that what's being talked about here is the tendency of eastern slave owners to use their hands to give commands to their servants. There's a quote that I came across. The attendants watched their master's eye and hand to know his will and to do it instantly. And so the master, with a wave of a hand, with a, a flick of the finger, would command the servants to prepare a table, bring out the food, clear the table, get the wine, whatever it was, they would do it with hand signals. Others see here in this imagery a slave looking to the punishing hand of their master. Master. They point out that in the Bible, the, especially the relationship between mistress and maid is never a good one for the maid. It's not often one of comfort. Here's another quote. The hand of the masters and of mistress can only mean the punishing hand. And the eyes are directed to it in the attitude of entreaty and supplication that the punishment may soon come to an end and pity be shown to the miserable. And still others would say that the servant looks to the hand of their master for provision, for what they need to survive, for their daily bread. And they look to the hand of their master for acts of kindness. Perhaps today my master will, will give me food, will give me what I need, will show me kindness with their hand. And so the question is, which is it? Which one is it here? Well, I would submit to you, how about this for an answer? What if it's all or even none of the above? What if it's all or none of the above? That is, all of those are quite possible. They all make sense. The hand of the master can give commands, can punish, can show acts of kindness and mercy. What if it's all of the above? Or what if it's something else at all? Because there's something that's true of all of those examples of the relationship between a servant and master. I think that is what is being pointed out in this psalm. What is common from all servants, all slaves, all maids, as they look to the hand of their master and mistress, is that that hand is the only one to which they can look. They can look nowhere else. 
whatever they will receive, they will receive from the hand of their master. That is their position. They are slave. He is master. In the position that the slave is in, and in those times, that position was a very restrictive one. You couldn't just quit your job, go find another master. No, that was your master. You can look nowhere else. No matter what's going to come your way, command, punishment, or kindness, it comes from the hand of the master. And that, then, is the relationship that the psalmist expresses here to God. We lift up our eyes to you whose throne is in heaven. We lift up our eyes to your hand because we can look nowhere else. We have no other master. There is no one else enthroned in heaven to whom we can look. There is but one God and even the angels do his will. So where else can we look? Whether we will receive good or bad, much or little, command, discipline, or kindness, we will receive it from the hand of our Heavenly Father. He is the King whose throne is in heaven. This, brothers and sisters, is the attitude of the pilgrim. Come what may, what choice do we have? Not a fatalistic attitude, but an acknowledgement that His throne is in heaven. And we can look only to Him. And so we do look to him for everything. He is our sovereign. He is our king. He is our master. As we go through times of trouble. As we go through times of joy. As we go through times of trial. As we go through times of blessing. We look to him. But we do not look in vain. No, he is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the covenant God who has shown his love and faithfulness and mercy from generation to generation to generation. We don't look to him in vain. We look to him in hope. We look to his hand until he shows us mercy because we know that time and time and time again, that hand has shown mercy to the humble servants who have looked to him in faith. If there is going to be respite, if there is help, if there is forgiveness, if there is mercy anywhere in the world, it will be from his fatherly hand. It will come from no one else. And so look to him. Humble yourself and look to him. Yes, the position of anyone who will come before this king who is enthroned in heaven, is a position of humility, of humbleness. That's the proper understanding and expression of God's holy rule. And this psalm expresses that humility strikingly. That image of the servant or handmaid looking to their master, it is striking. We have nowhere else to look. There is nowhere else that we can look for mercy, but yet, but yet, we do, don't we? 
There is one God who is enthroned in heaven. He is the only one that we can look to as we go through difficulty, as we experience blessing. But yet, we so often look elsewhere, don't we? We try to look for some other hand that will give us mercy, for some other hand that will pour out blessings upon us, especially in times of distress. Don't we look for our own solutions to the problems, our own well-worn, simplistic, tried and failed fixes? We've been there a million times. We've tried to do it ourselves again and again. It's never worked. But yet before looking to the hand of our master, we look to our own hands to solve the problem. We've got all kinds of ways of coming up with solutions. Suck it up. Turn to distractions. Take a holiday. Blame others. Do it yourself. The words and the humility expressed in Psalm 123, they draw us into the right and fitting place for the solutions. To that posture of deep humility. And the psalmist expresses that humility from the bottom of his heart when he says, Have mercy, O Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy is the cry of those who have been truly and deeply humbled. It is a cry that expresses our weakness, our helplessness. Yes, even the guilt of our own position, whether directly culpable for the trouble that we experience or not. Have mercy acknowledges this. We are entirely deserving of this situation. We cannot blame God for giving us something that we did not deserve. No, Father, have mercy expresses that we are deserving of this, and yes, even so much more than this, in our sin. What were the very first and formative lines out of David's mouth in Psalm 51 after he realized his guilt in committing adultery with Bathsheba? What were the first words out of his mouth off of his pen. Have mercy, O God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. He was deeply humbled. So what could he do but cry out for mercy? But at the same time, brothers and sisters, this cry, have mercy, does not wallow in the poverty of our sinful condition. Rather, it looks outside of our condition to God's abundant mercy and grace. We implore God to act out of his mercy because we know him. He's revealed himself in his word. And we know that he is a God who is rich in mercy. He's a God who's full of compassion and love. Yes, he is the righteous God whose throne is in heaven, but he is not a tyrant. He is not a cruel Dictator. He is a God who is rich and generous with his mercy. He is the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love and mercy as he so often revealed himself throughout Scripture. 
And so we do not cry, have mercy on me like a broken down beggar at the gates of a cruel tyrant, always calling out for mercy, but never receiving anything. No, we cry, have mercy to the very king of mercy himself. We rightfully expect his favor to come upon us. Psalm 119, verse 132 Turn to me and have mercy on me as you always do to those who love your name. Wait a minute, you say. How is this possible? This is a cry that recognizes our own guilt. That we have no claim for ourselves. It acknowledges our own guilt and weakness. And yet at the same time, it expects God's favor and mercy. How do these two things come together? How can we understand our profound guilt before a holy God whose throne is in heaven and yet at the same time have the audacity to call out to him in faith and expect mercy from his hand? How can it happen? Where does it come from? It comes only through the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of all our sins. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we see our profound guilt, what he had to suffer, the judgment that was his because of what we did. And yet at the same time, as we see our guilt there, we also see our guilt taken away through his work on the cross. As the Father poured down his judgment upon Jesus Christ, he poured down his love and his mercy upon us. As he gave his Son for our salvation. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we cry out, Have mercy, O Lord, have mercy. This, then, is the attitude that resonates with what we will witness later this morning in the baptism of Chad Chilibeck. As he will, through his profession and baptism, acknowledge his sin and weakness. And he will look to God because he's come to realize that there is no one else to look to for mercy. No other savior. For what afflicts his soul. And he will and he does seek mercy and forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. That sacrificial lamb of God. As God promises through this sacrament. The forgiveness of sins. In Jesus Christ do we find complete satisfaction. Only at the well of God's grace is our thirst for mercy truly satisfied. And so Chad is being baptized into God's covenant, the place where God's mercy works, into God's church, where God's mercy is proclaimed, sealed into God's family, where God's mercy is realized. That is what we will see in baptism, and it resonates with what is going on in this psalm. And so you might think then, Chad is being baptized into the church, into the covenant, 
into God's family. Chad must be, therefore, being saved from a lifetime of, of difficulty and trouble and persecution. But no, he is not. In fact, Chad, you are being baptized into a life of difficulty and trouble and persecution. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, we trust in him. But that does not extract us from difficult and trying circumstances. The reality is that even as we call on God for mercy, even as we receive mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ, life does not turn for us into a field of of tall grass and flowers of Birds chirping in the trees as we dance along the mountaintops to the tune of the hills are alive with the sound of music. It's not what happens as you live by faith. The occasion for this psalm is scorn and contempt. The scorn and contempt, in fact, of the enemies of God, the proud and the arrogant. The proud and the arrogant are by definition the enemies of God because in their pride they cannot accept the sovereignty of God. They cannot humble themselves before Him and so they rebel against Him. And they make war on God's people. They scorn them. They don't understand their humility. They don't understand their position. Why don't you pick yourself up and do something for yourself for once? They're not humbled by their weakness and sin. They're offended that someone would point it out for them. And so they recoil in horror. And they strike out against God and his people. They harden themselves against the humility that is expressed by those who are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's people, because they are God's people, have often lived under this opposition from their enemies. It's so common, in fact, that it makes this psalm impossible to date. You might think, well, okay, look for a situation in the history of God's people when they have endured scorn and contempt and ridicule from the proud and the arrogant. But that that is the history of God's people. Abraham could have sung this psalm. The people during the time of the judges could have sung this psalm. David could have sung this psalm. Elijah could have sung this psalm. Nehemiah could have sung this psalm. And it has not changed in the New Testament. The disciples felt it. The early church felt it. The believers through the Roman Empire felt it. The believers through all history have have endured contempt and ridicule from the proud. They have felt this opposition. The trouble has found them as they serve the Lord. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ, just as he himself was about to be handed over to contempt and ridicule from the proud and arrogant, he taught his disciples and all believers to expect the same. In fact, for us, the person and work of Jesus Christ becomes the divide. It becomes the deciding factor. He is either the cornerstone of your life Or he is the stumbling block over which you fall. When you come to him, you either harden yourself in your pride or you humble yourself before him. 
when you come up against what Jesus Christ has done and what that means for who you are in your sin and therefore what is possible through his blood, there are only two ways to go. You can harden yourself in your pride and you can follow the rest of the world as they heap scorn and contempt upon Christ and his followers. Or as you come before his gospel, you can be humbled, deeply and truly humbled, time and time again, brought to your knees before him. Yes, that path may mean enduring pain and persecution, but what is that to you? When you come to know and believe what Jesus Christ has done and you know who he is, then you prostrate yourself before him. You humble yourself before him and you say, I look to you like a slave to his master and whatever you will bring me will be mine. You look to him whose throne is in heaven and you say, have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. We'll end with the words of Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.